0: Our scripture reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 6 verses 9 through 11 and then from chapter 7 verses 9 through 17 we'll be kind of going over very quickly um, some of the texts that are in between there. Um, Again, we're at a place in Revelation as I noted a couple of weeks ago where there are some differences of opinion between scholars who are truly orthodox and truly seeking to understand the Bible in the way that it was written as a revelation of God. So I will sound dogmatic because I truly believe what I am teaching is the truth of God's word. I I think that's a good thing. But please don't take that as somehow argumentative or accusing others of being wrong. I will happily have those discussions with people if you have any questions about the way that we are approaching the book of Revelation. One thing as we were considering um, this passage, Matt and I looking at it together, was I think the whole book presents us with portraits of Jesus Christ. And as long as we see those portraits, the revelation of Jesus Christ, some of the other details of how we interpret some of the historical sections, things like that, become less important. So let's see Jesus this morning as the lamb who is a shepherd. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, Neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord for his church this morning. Please be seated. <clears throat> Father in heaven, as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, open our souls to receive the balm of scripture, the grace and mercy that you pour out in your Holy Spirit as you speak to us in ancient words revealed to your servant John so long ago that have spoken to the church in every generation right down to this one, revealing to us our Savior, Jesus Christ. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, we pray in his holy name. Amen. So going back to where we left off a couple of weeks ago, God always keeps his promises. He always has, he always will. And that is really good news for those whom he has chosen and called and justified for all of his people. In other words, this is true. It's good news for many reasons. But not least among them that in Romans chapter 8, the apostle Paul wrote that not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we, as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. He then goes on, but hope that is seen is no hope. Who hopes for what they already have and in saying that he informs us that this hope to which we were saved the redemption of our bodies is a hope that remains unrealized on this side of the resurrection of the dead which is to say God has made a promise and it's a promise that he has not kept yet Add to that the fact that Paul, in another place, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 19, wrote, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, if our whole experience of God and our hope in Christ is all bound up in this life, if that were true, Paul says, we are of all people most to be pitied. So it is good to know that God always keeps his promises. He always has. And he always will. We considered this a couple of weeks ago, looking at Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, when he opened the fifth seal. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? By the way, the Greek word translated earth throughout the book of Revelation is gay, which can certainly refer to the whole earth, but it can just as easily refer to the land. It can be translated as the land, defined as a territory that is understood as a separate geographical entity over which control may be exercised by one or more political entities. And that, in fact, is how the word is used in many places in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 2, the word gay refers to the land of Judah. In John chapter 3, John talks about Jesus and his disciples going out into the Judean countryside, as we have it translated. And that word is the same, gay, that's translated earth sometimes in the book of Revelation. And in Acts chapter 7, which relates what Abraham was told, Acts chapter 7, verse 3 go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Especially in this last context from Acts chapter 7, it's clear that the word's not meaning earth. Abraham is not being instructed to leave the earth and then to go to a different earth. Rather, he was to leave the land, gay of the Chaldeans, and go into the promised land, which at that time was the land, gay of the Canaanites. With this in mind, it's quite natural to translate that word and its variants as land, not earth, in the Book of Revelation. So, in Revelation six ten, they cried out with a loud voice, "O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the land?" I make that point because we sometimes hear earth repeated through the book of Revelation and we start thinking, well, this is really big. This has got to be talking about the whole cosmos, the whole earth. But in fact, that's not really supported by the text. What's often supported by the text is a much more historically based reading, an understanding of this book, that it speaks to something which from the frame of reference of the seven churches in Asia was yet to come, but from our frame of reference has already happened and still has application for us. So at that time they cried out, How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the land? Now there was an expectation of this. It's not a prayer that we would probably feel comfortable praying, but it's a prayer that's been prayed by the people of God in both Testaments throughout the history of redemption. And there's an expectation of this on the part of the martyrs because of a promise that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 23. There's a lot more to the text in Matthew 23 than simply the promise, but it's important for us to keep this in context because it speaks to the book of Revelation too. Jesus, in those woes that he pronounced on the scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites of his day, said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Now, we might hear that and think, Yeah, well, that's nice. Jesus heard that and said, Thus... You witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. And if you compare that woe in Matthew 23 with the parable of the tenants of the vineyard in Matthew 21, Mark 12, and Luke 20, Jesus is in effect saying to the people to whom he's speaking, Go ahead and do what your fathers have already done. They have killed the servants, the prophets. Now, finish it. Kill the son, too. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your own synagogues and persecute from town to town. And why? Pay close attention to verse 35 of Matthew 23, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the land from the blood of righteous Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. All what things? Well, the the blood guilt for the murder Of the prophets. All these things will come upon this generation. And in the same way that soon in the book of Revelation just meant soon, within the frame of reference of those who originally read and heard the words of that prophecy, this generation in Matthew 23 means this generation within the frame of reference of those to whom Jesus was speaking. Otherwise, it becomes not sensible. So as the seals are broken, and as the history of the world unfolds in terms of God's covenant, there's an expectation on the part of the martyrs that God will one day judge and take vengeance for their blood. As I said, we're not used to thinking in those terms today, but this too is a promise of God. It's reiterated in our text, chapter 6, verse 11, then they, the martyrs, we each given a white robe. Make note of that. It comes up again. And told to rest, to wait a little longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So it was not a promise that God had failed to fulfill. It was simply a promise that God had not kept yet. And as the four horsemen rode out, conquering and to conquer, it was important for the saints of the old covenant and even the more recent martyrs of those decades immediately following the ascension of Christ, it was important for the church to know that a day was coming when this promise of God would be fulfilled, even though it was a promise of judgment and wrath. It was particularly important because in verse 12, the vision takes an awesome, and and I mean that in the original sense of that word, an awful And at least for some, a terrifying turn. John writes, when the Lamb, when he opened the sixth seal, and let's just go back and and let me reiterate that everything that happens in this section and in all of the book of Revelation is happening because it is God's will. It is God who is making it happen. As the Lamb, Jesus Christ, breaks the seals on the book of the covenant, he makes these things come to pass. So the book of Revelation is not about the will and purpose of God for his creation being thwarted by sin and sinful, evil people. It's about the will and purpose of God being fulfilled as he unfolds, His word, and brings these things to pass. So when he had opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. This is frightful language. I understand that. We, we call this theologically the language of decreation. But to keep that in its perspective, we really would have to go back and work through the entire Old Testament. And, and we're not going to do that this morning. But I just want to point out that when a young man named Joseph came to his brothers and shared a dream with them and then later shared it with his father, he said, I had this dream. And in this dream, the son and the moon and the 11 stars bowed down to me. Now, if Jacob had been inclined to interpret visions and dreams and prophecies the way that many people seem to be inclined to do so today, Jacob would have said, don't be stupid, Joseph. The sun is a giant ball of burning gas, eight million miles or something like that. I don't know, not a science guy, from the earth. The sun's not going to bow down to you or the moon, and the stars are even farther away than the sun. What's wrong with you? What are you thinking? But Jacob, interpreting this dream, this vision, this prophecy, within a biblical frame of reference, says, Joseph, will your mother and I and your 11 brothers really bow down to you? And there are all these places throughout the scriptures where the sun and the moon and the stars and these astrological bodies stand in as signs, which is what God said when he created them back over in Genesis chapter 1. Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. And so the people of God have always understood that when we get into this language of decreation, we need to step back from a really woodenly literal interpretation and understand it in a more figurative way. For example, Psalm 18. If you were to turn there, you would discover the, the title of this psalm, which is part of the inspired Hebrew text, is a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He wrote this psalm, this song, on the day when God delivered him from the hand of his enemies and specifically from the hand of Saul. So this is a pretty specific time in history. And in this context, David wrote, beginning in verse 7, and and some of this language is going to sound really familiar, not only for our text in Revelation today, but as we go along. David wrote, then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. And he flashed forth lightnings and routed them then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke O lord at the blast of the breath of your nostrils the thing is none of those things happened in anything like a literal way on the day when the lord delivered david from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of saul That day is described for us at the end of 1 Samuel and the beginning of 2 Samuel in pretty mundane terms. In 1 Samuel 31, verse 2, And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The account is a little longer than that, and it's repeated to some extent in 2 Samuel chapter 1, but what you won't find in either account of the death of Saul and his sons and the deliverance of David through the death of Saul and his sons is the kind of language used in the poem, which is Psalm 18. You won't find it precisely because the end of 1 Samuel, the beginning of 2 Samuel, are narrative passages that talk about what really happened. And Psalm 18 is a song. It's a poem addressed to the Lord, glorifying God for what appeared in history from the standpoint of a human being standing on the earth as nothing more than a battle won and lost. But if we understand the flow of covenant history through the scriptures, what happened on that day was the transfer of a kingdom The kingdom that had been put in the house of Saul was taken away from Saul. Remember that day when when Saul tried to get Samuel to stay with him and he caught Samuel by the cloak and he tore a little corner off it and Samuel turned to him and he said, in the same way that you tore that little piece off my robe, God is going to tear the kingdom from your hands and give it to someone else. That's what happened. It's the transfer of the kingdom of God from the house of Saul to the house of David in fulfillment of the promises of God. And when that kind of thing happens in Scripture, you get this language of decreation. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 46. The Lord is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea and the waters roar and foam. And the earth shakes. Well, the psalmist isn't saying that that kind of stuff routinely happens. It is not routine for the foundations of the earth to be laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord. But what the psalmist is saying is that we go through these things in our lives that feel that way. And when that kingdom was torn from Saul's hands and given to David, it felt earth shaking to both parties. Now consider our text again in the light of this more familiar passage. From Psalm 18 to Acts chapter 2, and I'll begin reading in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judah, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. And give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Peter does not say this is kind of, sort of, a little bit like what Joel was maybe talking about. Peter goes back to an Old Testament promise of God, and he says, this that you are witnessing here in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, this is the fulfillment of the promise of God, because God keeps his promises. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and in the last days... It shall be, God declares, and it's it's worth noticing just just right now, very quickly, that Peter is saying, (laughs) because the prophecy of Joel was being fulfilled, the promise of God in Joel was being fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, the last days had already begun on the day of Pentecost. So there's no sense in which we should be talking about, well, we weren't living in the last days then, but somehow maybe we are now. That's not the case. The last days had already begun in pent- on Pentecost in roughly A.D. 30. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my servants, male and female servants, In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. But now this, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. So again, applied to the day of Pentecost, some 2,000 years ago, we have the language of decreation. And as in Psalm 18 and here in Revelation, it's not about astrological or geophysical phenomenon. It's about the transfer of a kingdom. Because what had been prefigured in the transfer of the kingdom from the house of Saul to the house of David was happening in an even bigger way. On the day of Pentecost, Jesus had spoken of just this in Matthew chapter 21, verse 42. He said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you. We often miss this when we're reading through this section of Matthew. It's not a pleasant part of Matthew necessarily. But he says, Therefore, I tell you. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you. The people that Jesus was talking to. It will be taken away from you and it will be given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost with all of the fruit that the Spirit bears in the lives of God's people marks a decisive moment in biblical and covenant history. It marks the taking away of a kingdom from the old covenant people, those who rejected and crucified their Messiah and giving it as a gift of grace to the new covenant people, which included the remnant of faithful Israel who turned to God through faith in Christ. And there is no getting around or under, or over this judgment. You fall on this stone, it'll break you to pieces. This stone falls on you, it'll crush you. When it comes, this judgment will hurt. The interesting thing is, even in the face of this divine retribution, because sometimes we think if people just really knew, if people could see miracles, they would turn to the Lord en masse. No, they won't. In the parable, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Abraham says to the rich man, your brothers wouldn't repent even if somebody went to them from the dead. And indeed somebody did. Jesus did. And in terms of if people really understood what's coming, they would surely return and repent and, and, and look to the Lord. But Revelation tells us then the kings of the Earth, the kings of the land, gay, same word, and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the pe- and the powerful, and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling out to God to forgive them for their rebellion and their sin and to please save them, but by- no when this judgment is poured out, when this kingdom is taken away, the people of the land hide themselves in the caves and the mountains and they call on the mountains and rocks, fall on us. Bury us alive and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand If you want to read about this in history, it's heavy heavy doing, heavy going, but get yourself a copy or go on the internet and find a copy of the works of Flavius Josephus, specifically the wars of the Jews. And in Book 4, and again in Book 6, you will read about what happened in Jerusalem at the time when a few years after Pentecost, that kingdom was completely taken from them and given to someone else. I cannot quote it. I cannot read from Josephus, from this pulpit, without our video being banned. The things that happened in Jerusalem during those days, we talk about the Great Tribulation, We well, nothing like that's ever happened. Yes, it did. The things that happened in Jerusalem and Josephus was there and he saw them with his own eyes and he wrote about them. The things that happened were horrific beyond anything you have ever seen on the six o'clock news watching wars and things that are happening in the world today. And I cannot read it, but you can. Go home and find it and read it. And that expression, the wrath of the Lamb, how does that resonate we think of a lamb a little meek fluffy you know kind of a pet gentle Jesus meek and mild but this is the lamb who stood in the center in the midst of the throne and who took the book of the covenant from the hand of the one who sat upon the throne God the father and who began to break the seals and who causes these judgments to come to pass this is the wrath of the Lamb. An unusual reference in a book that's full of unusual references. But people, when they experience and say, hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne. Well, of course, you know, God is consuming fire. No one can see God and live, the Bible tells us. But also, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Because the Lamb is the Lion. And the Lion is the Lord. And in the day of his wrath, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. But as all of this is about to happen, we come to an interlude in chapter 7. And I cannot do justice to this today. I won't even try. So if you want to talk more about it, there are some things in chapter 7 that might seem a little bit puzzling. If you want to talk about it more, please just ask me. I'll be happy to do that. But as all of these things are about to happen, as the sixth seal is broken, and the wrath of the Lamb comes upon the people of the land, John's perspective shifts. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. That's not certain. It's not something I'd argue about, but this sealing aspect in Revelation chapter 7 makes me wonder if, in fact, the sixth seal, which speaks of the sun being darkened and the moon turning blood red and other phenomena like that is just a relatively direct reference to the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given to the church because that's what the Holy Spirit does. In Ephesians, Paul writes in him, that is, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Baptism, of course, symbolizes that sealing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire a possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's exactly what's being described in Revelation chapter 7. God's people are being sealed. Now a couple of weeks ago I pointed to one of those interpretive principles and we have to come back to that. There is this repetition of two phrases, I heard and I saw. Or in some cases, I saw and I heard. Or in a couple of cases, it's not so much I heard, but someone said to me and then I saw. And those things always go together and they give us an interpretive framework. So where we first encountered this was in chapter 5. I heard an angel say, an angel said to me, do not weep for the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed so as to open the scroll and break its seals. And I looked and I saw a lamb standing as if slain in the midst of the throne. The lion of whom he heard the angel speak is the lamb that he saw in his vision. Well, here's that principle again. Um, Verse 4, Revelation chapter 7. And I heard... The number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed, from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then it goes on to talk about 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe, 12,000 from each of 12 tribes, for a total of 144,000, which is really not that big a number when you compare it to the 600,000 or so that came up out of Egypt at the time when God delivered them through Moses. And the way that it's framed, 12,000, from each of 12 tribes. We should not take that in a literal sense. Some have done so. Some have gotten really carried away with some false doctrine, trying to turn that 144,000 into a very literal number of people. But it's clearly a symbolic thing. Even if you go through those tribes, what you're going to find is that Joseph is named there with Manasseh. But when the tribes are numbered in the Old Testament, you'll find Ephraim and Manasseh, the two sons of Joseph numbered among the twelve. Um, and Joseph is always left out. So why Joseph and Manasseh, but not Ephraim? What's, what's, and there are reasons we don't have time to go into. But it's clearly a very symbolic number in this context We are not meant to understand this as exactly 144,000 people. But John doesn't leave it there. He goes on to explain in verse 9. After this I looked, I heard the number of those who were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a different perspective from the part of those who were sealed, who were given white robes, who were told that this day was coming. What a different perspective for those who say to the Lamb, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb from those who called on the mountains and rocks to fall on them and hide them from the face of the one on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And once again, the worship of the church easily identified throughout Revelation when we talk about those who are given white robes. Remember, we start with what we know. And here the worship of the church leads to the worship of the angels and the elders and the four living creatures who cry out, saying, Amen. We always end with Amen. This is so certain they start with it. Amen. Salvation belongs to our God. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's worship. Ascribing to the Lord the glory due his name. Amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen and amen. Again, this is something that happens over and over in this book because this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ is revealed to the people of God, God's people fall down and worship. But moving along, at this point, John tells us, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these? Clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know, and he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I'm going to come back to this again from a couple of weeks ago. This is so important these days when this truth is being challenged. What can wash away our sin? Absolutely nothing but the blood of Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name among heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Anyone who tells you anything different, if they tell you that the blood of Christ did not have to be shed to procure forgiveness for our sins, if they tell you that it doesn't matter if you know Jesus, as long as you are sincere in following whatever your belief system may be, anyone who tells you different is selling something. And really, anyone who tells you different is preaching another gospel, which, in fact, is no gospel at all. We are washed and made clean in the blood of the lamb. And for those whose robes have been made white in the blood of the Lamb, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. And we should go back here to Psalm 121. Shall I lift up my eyes on the hills? Where does my help come from? No, my help comes from the Lord. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. These are the promises of God to his people. But as we draw this chapter to its conclusion, notice the picture. Notice the portrait. Notice the revelation of Jesus Christ. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Some have taken this as a prophecy of the end of time when all tears are going to be wiped away. I don't believe that's what it's saying. I believe it's saying that the Lamb who is our shepherd is guiding us even now. He is leading us to springs of living water. And as we... Go through, because coming to this in a second, the valley of the shadow of death and all of those other hard times, there will be tears. And this is the promise of God saying, I will be there. The Lamb who is our shepherd will wipe away those tears. And this brings us full circle to where we began with our call to worship this morning. The Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And watch what happens here. It might be a little different from the way that we have often thought of this. The shepherd lamb is guiding every step of the way. He makes us lie down. He leads us to quiet waters. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So How do we find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death? We find ourselves there as have saints and martyrs of all ages because the Lamb who is our shepherd leads us there. And he's walked through that valley before us and he's come out the other side into the glory and the presence and the majesty of God and he leads us through it. So we need not fear because the shepherd lamb, who with his rod and staff, and I know a lot of times that's portrayed like we're going through this scary valley and there's lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And the shepherd is whacking them with his staff. But the rod and the staff weren't really for that. They were for leading the sheep. So his rod and his staff comfort us in this valley of shadow because they speak to the fact he brought us here and he will breed us, bring us through, lead us through. He continues to lead and to comfort his people even in the presence of their enemies. Saints and martyrs of the Old Testament knew this, those souls that were crying out from beneath the altar when the fifth seal was broken. How long? Before you avenge our blood, on the land. He comforted Stephen, the first martyr that we know of, of the church age, who was stoned for his faith, who saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, welcoming him to glory. He comforted James, brother of John, who was beheaded for his faith, and Peter, who was later crucified upside down, and all for the sake of the gospel, as he comforts Our brothers and sisters, wherever they are found, worthy to suffer for the sake of his name down to this very day as he comforts all of his people. As he comforts us, the shepherd lamb, leading us on to our true home. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the promise of God. And God always keeps his promises. He always has and he always will. Let's pray. Father, we come to you a mixed bag of of so many different thoughts and conflicting emotions and feelings some with tears in our eyes. Lead us on, Lord, to springs of living water, to lush green pastures. Lead us on to that place where we will dwell in your house forever and ever and know the perfect joy and bliss of your presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.